This is the Phelan & Myers 2 for 20 with the Willett Phelan Myers & Rotts Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott. Janie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130, Duluth, Georgia. Good morning and welcome to Phelan and Myers 2 for 20. This is Scott Phelan. We have with us a local CPA, Tig Reader, with us today. We are talking about some year-end tax planning ideas. Welcome, Tig. Thank Good you. morning Thank to you. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be here. So you are a local CPA. You're located in? Loganville. Loganville. Yes. Okay. And you've been in the accounting business? 23 bus- years. Yep. Jeez. It's <laughs> a long time. <laughs> it is a long time. <laughs> You, you look like a young man, though. Okay, so let, let's start out with some some basic uh, tax planning ideas. So, you know, one of the things that we look for this time of year are, are tax losses for clients. Can you just kind of give us a little bit of framework about how these tax losses work? Like, do you use them to offset gains? If you don't have any gains, what happens with them? You know, do they ever expire? That type of thing. Yeah. So uh, often, particularly this time of year, uh, folks are looking to uh, offset realized gains that they've uh, realized throughout the year. And the way to do that is by uh, harvesting losses. If they have some positions in their portfolio they're trying to eliminate uh, because they don't feel that they're going to rebound, then it's a good opportunity to use those losses to offset those gains. If you don't have any gains and you're trying to move from certain positions, uh, then your losses are limited to $3,000 per year in offsetting ordinary income. However, those remaining losses can carry over from year to year until they're either used in subsequent years to offset other gains or until you've utilized the $3,000 per year to offset ordinary income until they're exhausted. Okay, so so let's let's use an example. Mm -hmm. So let's say I bought a piece of real estate for I don't know, pick a number, $100,000, mm-hmm. okay? And I sold it for $175,000 two years later. I have a $75,000 gain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this year's been a difficult year in the stock market, as, right. as most people know. Um, so if I can find some stocks that have losses in, does it make sense to sell some of those stocks to try to offset that $75,000 of gain? And then if I do, can I buy them back but keep the loss you know, down the road, how, how, how does mm-hmm. that work? So you have to be careful with what's referred to as wash sale rules. Uh, wash sale is a situation where if you acquire a security 30 days prior to the sale or dispose of the same or similar security 30 days subsequent to that sale, you incur wash sale rules. So you have to be very careful on your timing of the buyback of that security, but you could certainly sell it, realize the loss, offset the gain from the disposition of other property, and uh, then subsequently buy that back, but you just have to make sure that you wait that 30-day period. Okay. So if I had, uh, again, using that same example, $75,000 gain on a piece of real mm-hmm. estate, let's say I had $100,000 in tax losses mm-hmm. in stocks. I sold all 100 that, or realized those $100,000 in losses. I pretty much wash out all that gain, That's correct, right. from this. Okay. And so I have a remaining $25,000 of mm-hmm. loss. I can take 3000 against income on my tax return. That's right. And then roll over that 22000 to the following year. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. I got you. Okay. And then one thing just kind of to throw in there for our listeners that I find is, is um, you know, sometimes with um, – 
some brokerage firms when they look at their 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 brokerage statement it'll show what they invest what they paid for a stock mm-hmm. and but but let, let let's use home depot as an example you know home depot stock they they purchased it multiple times okay and their total investment in it maybe is fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars today it's worth say two hundred thousand dollars a lot of time clients will look at that and they'll say well i've got one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of gain i can't ever sell any of this home depot right. without a significant gain but if you look under the hood a little bit, you realize some of the shares you bought may have less gain than the others That's simply right. because you bought them at different times. Do mm-hmm. you see that a good bit? Absolutely. And, and you can certainly choose which lots you want to sell, uh, it, but you need to make sure you're coordinating that with your advisor. Otherwise, they're either going to apply a, a FIFO method first in, first out, or they're going to use an average cost basis, one or the other. So you need to make sure you identify the specific shares that you do want to sell. That you want to liquidate. Mm-hmm. I got you. Okay. And then let's let's move to um, something that you and I have done over the years for, for some clients. Um, clients that, you know, that have very low income for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're they retired at age 60, Social Security hadn't kicked in, they don't have any income coming in because they just retired. There's an opportunity there sometimes to take money out of an IRA and pay very little in the way of tax liability. Can you talk, can you talk about that, like the scenarios where that might make some sense? Of course. Uh, and, and you want to be careful, make sure you're planning with your advisor, whether it's your CPA or otherwise. Uh, doing income planning. We do more planning, Scott, with retired individuals than we do with folks in their highest earning years because it's an opportunity uh, to draw down some of those retirement assets, get them into your brokerage account if you prefer, Um, but you need to do that strategically to make sure you're utilizing the marginal tax rates that we're in, historical lows, and an opportunity to, to pull some of that income in specifically before you start drawing Social Security. Once you start drawing Social Security, it's not that you can't take IRA distributions, and you know as well as I do the planning that we've done together. You have an opportunity to maximize uh, your income before that Social Security becomes taxable, and that's where you have to be cautious and careful. Um, but you can certainly draw down those IRA assets throughout time while you're deferring uh other retirement assets that you may have or drawing that Social Security benefit. Okay. And then one of the things that we've talked about doing, you know, in the past was when clients have large medical expenses. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how that works? So, like, one year I had a client that had, like, $60,000 worth of dental work, mm-hmm. and their income was really low, but it provided an opportunity to pull money out of an IRA. Can you talk about, like, the Absolutely. limits on, on medical expenses? Sure. So, there, as an itemized deduction, you can deduct out-of-pocket medical expenses that you incur. However, you can only deduct the amount that exceeds 7.5% of your adjusted gross income. So there's a balance uh, as far as what you're pulling from that IRA, because the more you pull from the IRA, the higher that 7.5% threshold, right? So, uh, but yes, if you have a client that has $60,000 of uh, out-of-pocket medical expenses, and they generally take the standard deduction, which of course the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 substantially increased the standard deduction that was available to folks, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But in the meantime, when you take that money out of the IRA, uh, you could certainly use uh, that income in place of other income that you may access, whether it be capital gains or otherwise, because you have those large medical expenses that's going to offset your ordinary income, give you an opportunity to itemize your deductions. Okay. Okay. And then one thing that I run across a lot is um, clients that are retired 
that are taking the standard deduction, mm-hmm. okay, and they're giving money to charity, either stocks or cash or what have you. Um, but can you talk about at what point you get a tax benefit, or I guess look, maybe we start with where you don't get the tax benefit, mm-hmm. where you're taking the standard deduction. But if you're 72 or older, we've got to take a required minimum distribution where you can get a potential tax benefit by giving money to charity. That's right. So what you're referring to is what's called a QCD or Qualified Charitable Distribution. It's a very popular planning technique. We utilize it very often with our current client base. Uh, it's where you make a contribution directly to your charity of choice from your IRA to that charity. What happens often, Scott, if you have someone who's retired, they're not paying mortgage interest on their house. Let's, uh, as an example, let's assume they're making $10,000 in annual charitable contributions and they have a required minimum distribution from the IRA of $25,000, okay? Well, if they take a $25,000 IRA contribution, they turn around, they write a check to their charity of choice for $10,000. When they go to file their tax return, they have to report the $25,000 of income from their IRA distribution. Then when they go to try to take their itemized deductions, they have $10,000 in charitable contributions. They have no mortgage interest. And then let's even assume they have $10,000 of state and local taxes. Well, their total itemized deductions at that point are only twenty thousand dollars the standard deduction is twenty five thousand nine hundred and once you reach age 65 you get an additional fourteen hundred dollars so for a married couple you're looking at a standard deduction of twenty eight thousand seven hundred so they had no benefit to that ten thousand dollar charitable contribution that they made so when they utilize a qualified charitable distribution from their ira they now make that ten thousand dollar contribution directly from their ira they receive a check for fifteen so now on their tax return, they're only showing income or reporting income of $15,000. They still have the same standard deduction of twenty eight seven. So it gave them the opportunity to deduct and receive the tax benefit from that $10,000 contribution. Okay. But and, and then one, just one thing to note is the 1099 that you received from the mm-hmm. brokerage firm does not distinguish between what came to you and what went to charity. That's absolutely so, correct. So clients need to remember to let their advisor know, hey, of this $25,000 I received, 10000 actually went to charity. Absolutely. Very important that you yep. communicate that with your tax preparer. Okay. Yep. Um, okay. And then, so kind of along those lines, let's say you're not required minimum distribution age. You're not age 72 or older. And do you want to uh, give money to charity? Okay. Mm-hmm. And you said if you're a married couple, you have a, uh, a standard deduction of 28 nine? 28 seven. 28 seven. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and if you're single, it's approximately 14,000? Roughly, yeah. Okay. So um, you want to give money to charity, but you're not required minimum distribution age. You're not 72 or older. And let's say you want to give $25,000 a year, every year. Mm-hmm. Would it make sense to give both those those contributions, those two $25,000 contributions in one year so that you exceed that standard deduction number so that there's some benefit on your tax return? You could. You could look at that. I mean, I think you have to look at the entire picture at that point. Uh, but you could certainly uh, bunch those deductions in a particular year. One of the strategies that you look at with clients is what is changing in their situation? Are they retiring in the subsequent year? Um, Are they going to have a a large source of income in the subsequent year, and therefore you want to time the deductions for that particular year? But if they're, let's assume uh, for purposes of this example, that they're uh, in their last year of working in their high income, 
then, uh, and Scott, you and I have done this with clients in the past as well, and they know that they want to make a certain level of charitable contributions, but we know it's not going to help them in the future. They may be deferring income in the future and not even drawing from retirement, just living off of savings for a year, two years, three years, et cetera. So in that current year, they could certainly make a charitable contribution deduction. And that's where things, uh, and, and a large charitable contribution deduction at that, and that's where things such as donor-advised funds and those types of things come into play, because they may not know where they want to give that $50,000 under your example yet. They know they're going to give it, uh, but they don't know exactly where they want it to go. So they could put that $50,000 into a donor-advised fund, and then subsequently in years future, um, spend the money or, or send the money out of that donor-advised fund to whichever charity they decide or charities. Okay. And w- one thing that I hear my, my business owner clients from time to talk, time talk about is, you know, uh, deferring income into the next year or accelerating income into this year. Mm-hmm. Can you put a little color on that and explain to me what, <laughs> what the, what is, I, I I always hear that they're going to defer it until the next year. Very, you know, right. pretty infrequently is it that they want to take it this year. They normally want to defer it. But what, what's what's the benefit of that? I mean, can you kind of explain that a little bit? Well, too? it's all from a, a planning perspective and opportunity. And, and each situation is different. And, Scott, I, I tease with you all the time and, and tell you that I can answer any any question with one simple answer. It depends. And it really does in this particular scenario. Um, traditionally, uh, in our profession, we've been – driven towards defer income, defer income, defer income. In the environment that we're in, uh, current tax rates and unknown future of where tax rates may go, we find ourselves accelerating income in certain circumstances and situations, particularly if we have an idea of what the following year is going to look like. Um, Once again, we may have a client come in and they're uh, in line to receive a large bonus or, or stock options or whatever the case may be in the the following year, but they have an opportunity to, let's say, harvest some gains this year when their income's lower. Therefore, they're either not going to get hit with the um, net investment income taxes or a higher capital gain rate, whatever the situation may be. We may decide to take those gains this year versus next year. So yeah, there's definitely circumstances where we will actually accelerate income versus defer, but it, it's the individual circumstance that, di- that dictates that nine times out of ten. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, one thing that I see from time to time to just add add something to the conversation here is actively managed mutual funds. And I'm mm-hmm. sure you see this on tax returns, oh, yeah. but actively managed mutual funds 15, 20, you know, or really 10 plus years ago were more popular, I would say, than they are today. Um, and so what happens with an actively managed mutual fund is those funds at, at year end, this time of year, will distribute out capital gain distributions. That's right. Okay, basically you're getting a pro rata portion of the capital gain distributions from other people's sale of that mutual fund. Right. Um, and so, uh, but, but you don't see actively managed funds in non-IRA type accounts that much anymore. Mainly what you see are indexes, you know, ETFs, mm-hmm. because they're more tax efficient. They don't distribute out those capital gains. So one idea, one thing that we've done a little bit of is, is for clients that do kind of have some of those legacy type holdings from years back, in a, in a down year like this, it's an opportunity to sell some of those actively managed mutual funds and reposition into something like an index that's mm-hmm. going to be more tax efficient. So I don't know if you ever see that or how big of a problem you see that being in clients' tax returns, but we see it from time to time. Oh, we we certainly have that issue with a number of clients. We had a, a quite a number of clients affected this past year with the performance in the market 2021. 
that were very surprised by their tax burden because of actively managed mutual funds and those capital gain distributions that were flowing through from their accounts to their tax return. Uh, and not understanding what that meant and how that works. Mm -hmm. Um, So you do need to be aware and cognizant of those types of assets in your portfolio because of the tax implication. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I think a down market like this is an opportunity to potentially work your way out of them, in in my experience. Um, Gifting. What is is the gifting limitation this year? And do you know what it's going to in 23? Yes. So in 2022, the gift threshold is $16,000. And this, of course, is without having to file an annual gift tax return. So you can give $16,000 per individual uh, and $17,000 for 2023. Okay. So um, uh, you're married. So you and Melissa could give $16,000 $16,000 to as many, $32,000 combined. You've That's got, right. You've got three kids, so mm-hmm. you could give, if, theoretically, I guess, what, $96,000. No. <laughs> yeah, no, $96,000. I was exactly right. I was exactly right. $96,000. That's right. Okay, combined every year and not have to file a gift tax. That's right. Now, one big question that I get is, okay, well, what if I exceed that 16,000 number? Mm-hmm. So Tig and Melissa collectively can give 32,000 to each of their kids, $96,000. What if one of the kids, you want to gift them some money to buy a house, mm-hmm. $150,000, okay? You can certainly do that. So they exceed, that child exceeds that $32,000 by $128,000. What happens? Because I always have clients say, well, I don't want to pay any gift tax, but it's not really a tax, right? It just, Okay, can you Not just... currently, that's right. So they would file a gift tax return. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's due the same time their individual income tax return is due. There's no gift tax that has to be submitted with that tax return. They use up part of their uh, lifetime exclusion, okay, which for 2022, I believe, is about $12.9 million or so. So there is Which is the exclusion. amount that they can give. That's right. A state tax-free mm-hmm. per spouse upon their death. That's correct, okay. but it does, if they exceed that annual gifting exclusion, they file the gift return. They're using some of that now versus okay. at their death. So if you have a client with a $4 million estate, uh, dependent upon what happens uh, in the future with a state tax law. So based off of current tax law, right. <laughs> they could certainly use part of their lifetime credit and not have any issue whatsoever. Okay, so in that example, we exceeded the gift tax limit by $128,000. Mm-hmm. Okay, you have $12.9 million you can give to mm-hmm. presumably your children estate tax-free. Melissa has $12.9 million that That's she right. can give, so it's $25.8 million combined. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what happens is is that uh, 128,000 that we exceeded the gift gifting limit by basically comes off of that number, exactly. right? That 25.8. That's, right. That's okay. correct. So instead of 25.8 was that 25.672 million, right. 25,672,000. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So it's really not a tax. It just decreases the amount that you can give at death. That's correct. Okay. Um, and then last thing I wanted to hit on that you and I have talked about, you know, over the years is um, step up at death. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, let's say, uh, uh, and we'll use you as, as an example. Let's say you're diagnosed with terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> so, so, so you're diagnosed with terminal cancer, and you have this piece of property in South Georgia you paid a hundred thousand dollars for twenty years ago, and it's worth a million dollars today. Mm-hmm. Okay, one thing that you and I have kicked around over the years is. Now we want to deed that property into your name, okay, assuming you live for a year, 
if you passed away, that property would then go to Melissa. That's right. At the stepped up value. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. So then the value becomes the value on your date of death. That's correct. Okay. So now she inherited this piece of property that had y'all sold it while you were alive, would have a $900,000 gain. But now she inherited it a million dollars is the cost basis. If she sold it for a million fifty, she would only have a fifty thousand dollar gain. That's correct. That she'd have to pay tax on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and not necessarily along the lines of stepped up basis, but uh, and certainly not to revert back to gifting. But one particular strategy that you need to have clients take a look at when they are gifting is uh, since you've discussed basis and, and capital gain, if you gift appreciated stock to your children, for example, you could gift $16,000 with highly appreciated stock versus liquidating that stock, incurring the tax liability, and then gifting the cash. That way, your your children can receive that highly appreciated stock, and they can either hold on to it. Of course, their basis is whatever your basis is. The giftee uh, has the giftor's basis. So when they sell the position, then they have the tax implication. Okay. I got you. And, and they, might, they may be in a lower tax bracket than That's you right. are. That's right. Exactly. Okay. That's right. I got you. Great stuff. We are right at 20 minutes. So thank you very much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me on. The information provided here is taken from sources which we believe to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of such information is not guaranteed by us. This is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of individual investors. Employees of Janie Montgomery Scott LLC or its affiliates may at times release written or oral commentary, technical analysis, or trading strategies that differ from the opinions expressed here. Investing may involve market risk, including possible loss of principal. Janie Montgomery Scott LLC, its affiliates, and its employees are not in the business of providing tax, regulatory, accounting, or legal advice. Any tax-related statements are not intended for and cannot be used or relied upon by any such taxpayer for the purpose of avoiding tax penalties. Any such taxpayer should seek advice based on the taxpayer's particular circumstances from an independent tax advisor. For more information about Jannie, please see Jannie's Relationship Summary Form CRS on www.jannie.com backslash CRS, which details all material facts about the scope and terms of our relationship with you and any potential conflicts of interest.